This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Architects talk about design a lot. Most of us go to school because we believe that we will become architects that actually design buildings. When it comes to design, most architects I know design until the drawings leave the office and never once look at the clock or associate their fees with just how much design they will be providing. So why is there so much bad architecture out there? That's just one part of what we'll be discussing today in episode 77, Design Better. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today we're going to talk about design. Pretty generic, but there's a reason this topic is seeing the light of day, even if you were listening to this episode at night. <laughs> and it's because I'm trying to figure out how the best way to describe how this came to be. And I, I can't think of a, <laughs> a way to say it other than just say it. So I was in my shower the other day, <laughs> which is where I do all my best mental wanderings. When I'm just standing there, I imagine that sometimes I'm just, just letting the water pour over you and calm, wash away the terror of the day. Yeah. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Every morning I'm in the shower and and I just, I kind of zone out and things just pop into my head and then I kind of go down a rabbit hole for a while. So the other day when I was taking a shower, the kind of the idea of design better came to my mind and it really had to do with, I was on the highway driving and I was leaving Dallas. This was a couple of months ago. And there's a corridor of 75, which is a highway that we have. And it's heading up towards Oklahoma. And I'm just passing through this, like all this like terrible highway architecture for a while where it's like every possible restaurant chain and every storage facility you could imagine. I'm looking at all this stuff that I look at and go, this is terrible architecture. It's the kind of thing that, I mean, honestly, I get a little depressed when I see it because I think, thank God I don't have to do that, but somebody is. And how does that reflect upon us as an industry? Even though I would venture a guess that a lot of that stuff didn't actually use an architect, or if it did, it used an architect that falls more into the, I make sure water doesn't come in the buildings as my number one priority. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Which is not a bad priority. I'm not trying to suggest that that's not. So the design better could be a very indicting statement that suggests that some particular designs out there are not all that they should be. That's one way of design better. It's like me saying, Hey, do better design better. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, that's garbage. Not, yeah. It's uh-huh. garbage. Yeah. But there's another way to interpret it. Maybe it's for someone who feels up to the challenges and I design better. We design better. Come hire us because we design better. Like it's meant as a positive thing, a growing thing, a statement of, your place in the world. Yeah, almost like a manifesto or something. Kind yeah, of thing. we do better here. I could absolutely see design better as, as a positive slogan for some architecture firms. I didn't do a Google search, but I bet if I did, I bet I'd find one. Yeah, <laughs> says, probably. It says right. design better somewhere out there. So I thought for the purposes of this episode, we're going to drill that down a little bit. But before we get into it, let's break the design better apart because design, I think we can all kind of agree what in terms of the people who might be listening to this show, what does design actually mean? Maybe. <laughs> All right. I'm happy just off the top of my head because I said that I would actually define it and I didn't. Off the top of my head, I was like, design better to me is a reflection of the creative process that yields an actionable result. Meaning when I design something, there's an idea, I articulate it, it turns into something that I can hold or look at or exist that serves a purpose. That's what design it's a verb. Design is a verb to me. You don't design art. That's no, the artists are going to kill me. That's not true. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> design is a verb and a noun though, but it's a noun that describes the result of the verb in reality. It's an act, right? It suggests that there's a process involved for me. Yeah. Design, like you said, it's a verb. So let's get into the better because that's really subjective here <laughs> for the purposes of our conversation. Yeah, very much so. That's where it gets really tricky. Yeah. and. Look, I will tell you that I'm not entirely convinced, I'm not convinced at all, that (laughs) I'm in a position to hold myself out as arbiter of what better means. I can just say what I think. I go, that's no good, or that's good. I mean, I think that I can evaluate stuff based on my own values, 
And I would venture guess that if I say that's junk, most of the ar- other architects out there that design will go, that is junk. I don't think that my opinion is too incendiary. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. But I do think it gets to be difficult because I definitely can't hold myself out as arbiter, you know, because there are times where I'll admit I've done some stuff. Been that architect, it's their job to keep out water, right? Yeah. It's also because it was my job to keep the lights on and people paid. I did a little bit of that. It wasn't always my favorite kind of work to do, but I can't say that. I don't know that any architect can really say every piece of work in my career and history has falls under that design better envelope. Right. Because you know what? Better might be, was it on time? Was it in the budget? Yeah. There's lots of different criteria you can put on what better could mean because depending on what user group you represent, better could be evaluated by different sets of criteria. Yeah. So we're going to get into different criteria later, but for now, the criteria is I'm an architect and I design buildings. That's the criteria. That's my starting point. Okay. Yeah. So in order to have this conversation, I'm going to do the one thing that I typically hate that other people do to me. I'm going to tell you my architectural origin story in an effort to get you into my headspace as I answer this question, which is normally people will say, hey, I have a quick question for you. But first, let me tell you every facet of my life. Let me tell you the last 50 years of my history. Go. And then they go, should I put shutters on my house? <laughs> you know, it's, I go, all right, it's fine. Would glass block work in this scenario? Yeah, I, you know. right. But in this case, I think it, it's germane. So my design process is a direct result of my career trajectory. And that means both the good and the poorly planned, which I will be the first one to say. I took some jobs I shouldn't have taken, but that's not to say I didn't learn something from it. Sometimes I learned what not to do. And and that's just as valuable, especially when you're younger. You can learn by mistakes, right? Absolutely. And in the beginning, look, when I say, here's a really great thing that you should internalize. Here's a lesson I learned. Almost all those lessons happened when I was younger. The frequency certainly happened more often when I was younger. Yeah, we don't learn as much as we get old. Well, because you, hopefully you learn from your mistakes and you don't repeat them, right? So <laughs> yeah. the opportunities are different. So in the beginning, <laughs> dun, it's, like, dun, dun. it's like I'm reading the Bible yeah. in the beginning. So I worked on interior architecture projects when I first got out of school for three or four years. And keeping water out of a building was not part of that process. I mean, we were doing stores inside malls, inside existing buildings. Yeah, that was not your scope. Mm-mm. I did interior storefronts and a lot of millwork and electrical and lighting design and soffit designs. And it was very creative process. Yeah. Structural was not an issue. I would use metal studs to design anything that needed. There was no steel. Yeah. I just, that was not part of what I needed to learn. And the contractors that generally work on those sorts of projects are spectacularly talented was my experience. And the reason why that matters is the types of projects we were working on is we would design like Genesis design. We'd like, oh, here's a prototype store. And then that store would get rolled out in different malls across the country. And it was not uncommon for the owners of the business to hire the same contractor to build all these stores. And so they would travel from city to city to city to city executing all these projects. Yeah. And A lot of times when retailers get their terms of their rental put together, they get a certain amount of free rent. Like starting on this day from the day you sign your contract, we're going to give you six months free rent and then you're on the clock and you have to start paying rent. So the really savvy retailers, they will pay a huge premium to their contractors to come in, execute these projects really fast, not make mistakes, not have to undo things so that they can open their doors and get rent-free income For for a a couple couple of months. months. Yeah, exactly. So the reason why I bring that up is kind of a crucial piece of my origin story is the contractors that I worked with for the first three, four years out of school were all on the ball. They were great. They protected me from ever stepping in it. (laughs) There were no major bear traps in any of the work that I did. Yeah. There was no water issues to deal with. It was. Yeah. And there wasn't any major bear traps anyway, but if there were, they would keep you from stepping in them. That's right. I worked for this firm for a number of years, and then I started to feel, I don't know, like I wasn't who I was supposed to be doing this type of work. Inadequate. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, let's just put it out there. I was feeling like a loser because I wasn't licensed yet. Yeah. And in my mind, from the moment I graduated from college, 
I felt like I wasn't an architect until I was licensed. That was a really big deal to me. And I thought, I'm not qualified to take this test because I don't know how buildings get built. I don't know. Yeah. I know how to fill out a mall, but that's about it. Yeah. Yes. I have this fairy tale fantasy of a career so far of it's all design and amazing contractors that I'm working with. I don't know. I don't understand the realities of the real yeah. built environment. So I started changing jobs. And what happened at almost every single one of these stops along the way is people quickly realized that now I didn't want to acknowledge this because I went to these places to learn how to detail buildings, how to keep water out. And they're like, yeah, we got other guys to do that. We want you to design and we want you to talk. Like I got myself in the room frequently and that would last for like a year and a half. And I go, I'm no closer to being the architect. I can't take the test. I'm not going to pass it. That's not true for those that are listening, right? You don't have to go through this process to take the test, just study the book. But in my mind, I felt like I needed to go through this process in order to take the exam. So I kept changing jobs and changing jobs. And every single time they would say, we don't need you to do that. We want you to do this. And so ultimately the way I decided that I would, I would solve this problem rather than just lean in and accept the fact that I was naturally predisposed to being a pretty good designer. Like I'm not the greatest, but I'm pretty good. Talking. I'm pretty good at talking. <laughs> as evidenced by the first 15 minutes of this podcast. I went to a residential firm because I thought, hey, at a residential firm, it'll let me lean into the skill set that I, I guess I naturally am better at, but I'll have to learn how to draw things because they'll need me to draw things. So this was back in the AutoCAD days, and I was obsessed with how things get built and how they get drawn, and like I got to really learn how to do this. So in the exercise of me learning how to do this, when I drew things in AutoCAD, I would draw a line. And this is back before Revit, obviously. And so drawings were not as intelligent as they are now. We weren't designing in three dimensions. So I would draw a line for every surface that existed in a wall assembly. I would literally draw a line for the inside face of a wall, then offset that by five eighths inches for the sheetrock, and then five and a half inches for the exterior studs, and then another five and a half inches for brick ledge, and then I'd come back the other way for three and five eighths for my masonry. And then I'd offset seven sixteenths for my sheet. I mean, my wall was reflected by six lines as every single face. And so as it moved around the building, I would trim and connect and fill it every line together to know where something started and where it stopped and how it transitioned and how did the stone continue. But my sheathing stopped at this point for doors. I drew it obsessively. But that's kind of the point of all this was when I look at design now and when I think about what does design mean to me, it reflects that process, that assembly process. That's the mentality that I developed after 15 years of not being asked to actually detail and draw anything to the next 15 years being that's all I obsessed over was how does this piece go to that piece and this piece connect into that piece. And so now when I look at architecture, I 100% evaluate it based on how things are put together. So when I say design better, to me, that means we need to be looking at our projects as an assembly of parts and how they're put together. And furthermore, it's not just an architectural consideration. This applies to developers. It applies to builders, municipalities, to anyone who has a role in the built environment. They just might have a different step-by-step -step process considering if they're a municipality or a planning zoning department or a developer. So there you go. That's that's my very long-winded but very interesting, I hope, origin story <laughs> of better to me has to do with consideration on how things come together as a reflection of the whole. Nailed it. <laughs> Mic drop. So here's my question to you, Andrew. Now that I've waxed <laughs> on and on about my origin story and how that equals what better means to me, can you define what better means to you? You know, it's funny to hear you talk about that. And you said it's like the first 15 years of your career. I got to that point fairly quickly in my career about the assemblies part, because I was doing that not in year 15, but in year three, back in the CAD days where we were just drawing lines. It was a computerized pencil at that point, or a pen is really all that it was. Yeah. But yeah, I think better really involves all the parts. I mean, not just the assemblies of the buildings themselves, but the other things I think that come into play. Unfortunately for me, I feel like a lot of that stuff is things I don't have domain over like the economics of it or the climate impact of it or those kind of things because there are other entities we'll talk about later that impact that stuff. 
to me, it's designed better is trying to get the assembly of all of those components, not just the components of the building, but the entire components, the process together in a way that's better. And again, and I don't know exactly how you define what better means, but it's, it's about. Well, but better means something to you. Yeah. So to Andrew Hawkins, what's better to you in this case? Is that something that, look, for all the people that are listening, answer this question yourself. It's impossibly hard. It's, <laughs> this is not an, yeah. this is not an easy topic. It's not a, the better part, right? For sure. Yeah. I, I think for me, it would be just that idea of all of the smaller parts become better. Because we've had some discussion about it. And I'm not really a big gesture guy either. Mm. I'm more excited about design better if the tiniest detail in the building is like perfect, spot on. And yeah. it's done really well and it's effective and it's efficient and it's elegant and all those sorts of things, right? And to me, that's how you get down to a level of what design better means. That it's it's all these parts that add up, but it's not some giant gesture where, oh, I've got this really cool cantilever thing and then the rest of the building is garbage. Right. It is about that assembly, but to me, it's a getting down to a certain level and applying your design principles all the way down to those minute details. I feel like I need to say this. Part of me feels like I should need to say it. It's kind of like you saying, I take care of my kids. Well, you're supposed to take care of your kids, yeah. right? So saying, oh, keeping water out of the building is important to me. Well, yeah, of course it is. Like that shouldn't be something that we have to discuss. Of course you need to keep the water out of the building. So that's why I kind of push that to the side is not really a topic of consideration. Not that it doesn't have value, but it's something that I don't care who you are. That should be, that's very low bar. Yeah. Well, I think that's like baseline, right? Yeah. If your bar is to keep water out of the building. Maybe you're the person we're talking about that should be doing better, right? Like raise your bar, do more than just keep water out of the building. Yeah. I will add to that as best you can within the freedom or leeway that you're given. Okay. So let's get into that. Let's talk about that actual design process. And so part of it is like maybe some of the unforced, not the unforeseen. Uncontrolled. Yeah. Uncontrolled or the unseen, the considerations that you might make to, to do better, to make a better design. So one of them is, say, designing to the ability of the contractor. And that can just mean that you think about how something is built and have you just designed a detail that's impossibly difficult for it to be executed by somebody. Have you just done something unreasonable? Yeah. Or have you designed something that they have to bring in someone special from this one cave on the other side of the planet? This is the only person who knows how to do this. Is that a reasonable way to solve this problem or maybe is there a better way to solve the problem maybe there's budget considerations well there's always budget right so you always should be designing to somebody yeah i don't know anybody i don't care how expensive the project is there's still a budget but i think we have some responsibility to hitting that budget and when you look at a lot of these like i think about all the olympic buildings that get built oh god yeah and they're amazing and they're almost all always over budget oh yeah right because they're statement pieces and right and what's more important is making that statement sometimes and they put added value on that statement over actually hitting the budget. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But if I design a detail that requires that guy to come from the cave on the other side of the planet, cause he's the only person that can do it. That might be an unreasonable use of my budget to execute that detail. Yeah. So that's a design consideration. Or even not into that point, but where it's like this trade's got to do something and then this trade's got to do something and then the other trade's going to come back and then the other trade's got to come back. And like, there's this really, convoluted workflow even if it's everybody that's going to be on the job site but the order in which it would have to happen to work out the way you've got it may not be economical either yeah there's too many steps in there that allow it to just get messed up yeah so that would suggest to the person doing designing that they have enough familiarity with the workflow on a project site to realize hey if i detail it this way person comes out does their bit they leave the next guy comes in they do their bit they leave and there's not a lot of you come do 15% of your part. I'll come and do 5% of my part. Then you come back and do 80% of your part, but then I'll come back and do 15% of mine. And then we'll get the third person in. Yeah. That's just, sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes that is the goal and that's what it demands. And it, we're not trying to design and build to the lowest common denominator, but taking that into consideration is really important. And I'll give you a really easy example. Let's say that I don't design houses for a living, even though I do. And if I <laughs> design a house, and I want my ceiling heights to be some stupid nine foot four and a quarter, right? For some reason. It's proportionally correct, right? Yeah. The Jupiter was in alignment with this moon and I use that math times pi of this. And 
It tells us that we have to have nine foot four and a quarter. That's wildly irresponsible. Here's what's crazy about that. I could just do a 10 foot ceiling or nine foot ceiling, generically speaking. Even if I make a taller ceiling, it's going to cost less Mm -hmm. because I don't have to cut studs. I don't have to do additional trim work on drywall. I don't have to, I'm not buying the product just to cut the product off and then put it in place. I've created so much more labor than if I just say, hey, you know what? Make it nine foot, make it 10 foot. There's certain building modules, unit sizes that you can design to that will simplify the process to a point to where you're not exacting such specificity. The idea is that having some understanding of building materials and their unit sizes and designing to those standards can make a more efficient building. Even if it's, you're like, oh, I'm going to make it smaller. I'm going to save money because it's smaller. Not necessarily. If you're creating work for people to cut down a standard unit size just to make that smaller, does not save money. Mm -hmm. They're still having to buy the bigger product. So there's a certain amount of institutional knowledge that goes into this process. And I advocate it for all the time. Sitting up here at the office recording, it is currently 7.13 p.m. And in my little group of 10 people that are right here, three of them are up here working right now. And one of the guys that's working is a really savvy designer. He has like really good sensibility of scale and proportion. So rarely do I have to come over and say, that's too big. That's too small. Slide that over. He's one of those people that just kind of feels it. But the difference is, is he's still early enough in his career where he doesn't have that institutional construction part of his tool bag filled out just yet. Mm -hmm. So we'll have conversations about hey, the way you've drawn this, it looks great, but it won't get built this way. And the way that it gets built is going to change the way that it looks. So let's talk about how they build it so we can either make a decision to go, is this really going to be a channel or is it going to be a steel tube that we're going to weld an angle to on the bottom to do what we want it to do? Let's talk about how they might build that so that it's effective, it's efficient, it's affordable. We're not asking for something crazy. So we have lots of these conversations about, okay, what you're doing looks right. But let's add that next layer of knowledge that we've picked up through time and experience. And for him, this is that moment when we talk about it. And I think he enjoys it. <laughs> I hope he does. <laughs> you know, yeah. his desk is littered with my sketches. Yeah. But I think it's important. Even if, even if he doesn't enjoy it, but I think it's important to expose them to that kind of thinking. I mean, anybody, right? To expose them to that sort of way of thinking about things as a definition of better because it's those kinds of things that again help everybody i mean maybe not everybody but in that example you're giving right i think that helps everybody i mean the budget's less the people that have to construct it it's easier you know all those kinds of things Mm -hmm. and then when it gets buried in the wall nobody sees it the owner doesn't really care but it's still better they're happy that it's not costing more and so it's better in in that regard and i think it's beneficial to expose people to that i mean because i was always doing that with my young people as well, right? We talk about, well, you can draw it that way, but they're not going to build it that way because the sequence of who shows up on the site, when and where, that doesn't work that way. Yeah. The sheetrock guy is not here before the framer, so you can't really make it work that way or whatever it is. It's important to expose that way of thinking about things as a way of being better. Yeah. You know, and again, back to the origin story, the way that I just I hammer down on these folks in a very pleasant, friendly collegial manner (laughs) is a reflection of an inadequacy that I had for the first 15 years of my career. Me just going, I just draw it. It just looks good. That's all that they wanted from me. And then somebody else would figure out how to keep water out of it or how does this Mm -hmm. connect to that? And it drove me bonkers. Like I hated it. And so I look at these folks now and I go, what a great opportunity you have. You're five years in your career, you're 10 years in your career, you could start this process now and you'll be light years ahead of where I was. And I go, and I think I turned out pretty good, right? You can, you can get further downstream sooner than I can, right? Yeah. Like you said, it's one of the fruits of that process is that it should be better for everybody. Like it's flashed better, it's detailed better, it's built better, it's cost less money. Aesthetically, looks the way that it needs to look. There's all these kind of better boxes that I can check yeah. by me having a greater grasp of all of it rather than just my, what some people might say is my role as design. I designed it and I step away. No, you don't. Mm-hmm. It's all of it. You got to consider all of it. Here's another design better challenge. We rattled through a couple considerations from a design standpoint 
that kind of figures into the quote unquote, the better aspect challenge bucket doing to a budget and the limitations of the contractor pool that you might be working with or understanding building materials, all that kind of stuff. So we kind of talked about that a little bit. One of the things that, well, a couple that we haven't talked about, one is for a developer, what does better mean? For a planning and zoning department, which I will tell you, the bane of my existence is how they have tried to come up with all these prescriptive requirements. Homeowner associations do the exact same thing. Oh, yeah. You got a bunch of well-intending folks trying to figure out how they can control quality in their community. And they're not designers, typically, that design these standards for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. But somebody has said, okay, look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to come up with these prescriptive design guidelines. I just kind of wrote down a couple here. I'm worried that there's going to be architects that are listening to this that are going to get PTSD because we've all been through it. Hell yeah. We've all done something and go, this makes no sense. Yeah. This requirement you put on me does not equal better architecture, but they don't know how to define it better. So they do things like, oh, 85% of the facade will be masonry. And of that 100% of what you're required to put in, 15% will be in an accent material or four inch caliper contributing trees required for every 25 foot of frontage. There's just kind of like, if this, then that kind of logic that goes to it. Yeah. Or they'll have like glazing is required to be at 22% your total facade with a reflectivity below this percentage amount, or you must have 5% of offset for every 50 foot of building length. And this doesn't make, this makes generic architecture is what it is. There's no considerations for hey, the lot that I'm in, or something a little bit more creative. But they know that they're going to get garbage. Let me back that up a little bit. The concern is that they're going to get garbage. Yeah, I'm going to get rubber buildings, or I'm going to get sheet metal clad boxes that people are going to sell products out of, you know? Yeah, we're going to get the lowest common denominator possible is what they're afraid of. You know, I'm reminded of a story where it comes, this is kind of a developer. So when we're rolling out all those retail environments, Mm -hmm. The CEO of this one company, and it was for maternity clothes. And I'm talking to this guy, and I'm like 25 years old. I'm young. Yeah. And he's pretty seasoned. He's your age now. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, he's he's probably in his mid-50s. So a little older than I am, I think. Yeah. But, you know, when you're 25, you look up and you're like, he's probably a 1,000. Yeah, exactly. Know? Oh, yeah. He's yeah. like, I'm 47. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're having this conversation. I'm over in his office and I'm showing him the kind of layouts for a couple of stores that I'd put together. And we had this conversation. I don't know how it started. I just remember how it ended. And he told me, he goes, if I could sell our product out of the back of a basic semi-truck trailer, I would. (laughs) But nobody will pay $300 for a dress that they buy out of the back of a semi. Mm -hmm. So I have to build an environment that suggests that the dress that they're buying has value that is commensurate with what I'm charging. Yeah. The environment you're in. Yeah. So he, as the guy who directed the budgets and like the future of this company, how we're going to make it work, recognized that the aesthetics had value for driving the cost of the product that they were selling. Mm -hmm. But in his heart, his heart, he's like, I don't spend this money because I want to. I spend it because I think I have to. Yeah. I would really like to not spend this money and just sell it out of the back of a truck mm-hmm. is what he would like to do, but he recognized that he couldn't. So I take that in consideration when I look at developers and I think about what are their goals. Their goal is to m- make money. Yeah. Pretty sure like in the lowest common denominator. Maximize. Their goal profit. is I'm going to put money in, I'm going to get money out. I don't blame them for that, right? But they don't have, I shouldn't say that. That's not necessarily true. They're not all like that. I don't want to like cast them all into this one singular bucket that says they're all terrible and they would do the cheapest, nastiest work possible if it meant they made an extra dollar. My perception, the perception out there is that that's probably not too far from the truth. They only do what they feel they have to do, not because they have some altruistic goal of making a better community. I'm going to spend more money because it's going to be better and people will like it better. They only come to that conclusion if they think, well, it's better because then it will make people want to come here because I'm spending money to make it better. Yeah. And then I can charge more for the space. Yeah. And because it's better, people show up. And because people show up, I can charge more rent. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. There's a one plus one plus one equals three kind of mentality to this. And there's a reality to that. Well, actually, you know what? I asked you to take a look at 
the prescriptive requirements that planning and zoning departments do that we've all had to deal with. Yeah. But that's not true anymore for us. No. In Texas. In the great state of Texas. Yeah. So as of 2019, it was doing a little research on it. It was a, a bill passed in the legislative session the summer of 2019 that was House Bill 2439. Not that anybody really cares. But what really happened was these developers, who I thought were the main driver, but when I started looking into it even more, some of it was the material product people that also really got into it and were really adamant that these things changed because municipalities weren't letting some of their materials be used. So they were losing out on markets because certain places said, no, you can't use that material. And so what happened was the Texas legislature passed a law that said, municipalities can no longer limit any type of building material usage as long as it's allowed by the code. Interesting. For the last three code cycles. So like not last three years, but the last three cycles. So for any product from now, that would be for us, what, 2015, 2018, and 2021. But at that time it was 12, 15, and 18. If the material is in the code as a usable material, then it can be used on any project in any location. Nice. The only exceptions to that were like, if it's in a historical district or if it's in a historical property, then it can be limited. Or if it's on a project that is applying for state or federal funding and there are certain requirements for that. The only other real one were a bunch of lighting ordinances. They could still do things about night sky ordinances and a lot of lighting requirements. Mm -hmm. But as far as just specific material usage, like it's got to be 80% brick and, you know, you can't have metal siding or any of that kind of stuff or you can't have cement fiberboard. None of that is allowed anymore, at least as a state law. Now, I read some other stuff that that made a lot of places not very happy. Right. I would imagine. A lot of the dissident stuff I found was up in your neck of the woods. I don't doubt it. Some of the suburbs up around Dallas that were like just blowing gaskets over it because it was going to ruin their town now that we allow hardy siding in some building, right? But as of today, it can't be regulated for building materials as long as it's a building in the code. Well, it can't be regulated by municipalities. Yes. Yeah. Municipalities can't regulate it, but developers can still state it so that if they have a piece of dirt and you want to build a pad site and you're going to put some on it, they can dictate what you put on there. But it's just the municipalities that can't. Yeah, but I mean, the developers don't really do that anyway. But apparently there was some... And I wasn't aware of this either, that in some instances, there was residential regulations as well. Oh, yeah. That got eliminated. Yeah. So uh, that was interesting. But yeah, no more. Yeah. You know, I will tell you this. We had a project that was just outside of Dallas here. It was in Colleyville. And I wrote a post about, I had showed all the math. I'm having to calculate oh, the amount of stone. God, yeah. But the way that they measured the stone was from the plate line down. So anything above the plate line didn't contribute. Didn't count. Yeah. Didn't count. So I go, wait a minute. I can put stone and then as soon as I hit my plate line, yeah. I could go to like garbage above that. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't count. Yeah. And I go, what's the reasoning? What's the logic behind this? Or they'll say, you have to hit a certain percentage of masonry on your project. But the difference is is I could put all my masonry on the front and then go to garbage on the back because they don't do it by facade in a lot of places. Yeah. You know, they they won't say you have to hit 80% on every facade. They'll say, you have to hit 80% of your total, which means I go, well, I can put 100% on the front elevation and half of my side elevations. And then I've freed up me putting junk on the back. Yeah. You know, I don't understand the, the thought process. So if, if you actually think that your goal is to make something better, there should be a little bit more rigor applied to the standards that you put in place, which a lot of times that does not seem to be true. Where I live, it was 100% about visibility. It had all these rules if it was visible within 300 feet of a right-of-way. If you could see it from a street, it had all these different requirements. And so if it was the full front of the building or the front and part of the side or all these sorts of things, that was what regulated all of the material choices. And of course, it was like 80% masonry. And then they also had color palettes. There was a select set of colors that you could use. Yes. And that was it. And if not, you had to apply for variants. One of my favorites, though, as I was doing a public project for the city, and it's in this, not a historic district, but it's what they call the design district. So they had the, a set of design standards that were even more stringent than just the regular ones for around town. And one of the requirements was that for the first eight feet of the facade, it had to be 80% glass. 
because essentially they wanted storefront because it was in this walkable district. Mm-hmm. But what we were do- <laughs> what we were doing was the new public restroom facility for that whole district that the city was making. So I was like, all right, man, we're going to do some glass and, and we're going to throw some backlight on it. You know, <laughs> but no, of course. I mean, this is the crazy thing is we had to go through a three month process to apply for the waiver, to get the variance, to do all that stuff so that we didn't make glass bathrooms for the municipality that wrote the rules that said we had to have glass. It's so silly. Yeah. You know, I was talking with Lane Acree. We've had him on the show. He was one of the hypothetical guests we had at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. He and I were talking about this last night, and he used that exact example for a project he was working on in Louisiana. <laughs> and it yeah. was this massive requirement for glass. And he's like, there are toilets back here, and there's a kitchen. And he goes, we don't want glass. And they're like, you got to do glass. And he goes, what if I articulate the wall so it suggests like it steps in and steps out, like these are where the windows would go. So it's articulated. And they're like, nope, it's got to be glass. So he had to put in spandrels. Like he had actually put in a window system, put spandrel glass and everything just so he could meet that requirement. Of course, that drives the cost of the project up in a nonsensical way. It just doesn't make sense. Because oddly enough, fake glass is more expensive than real glass. Oh, God, it's so amazing. Well, you know, for those of you that listen that might be a little bit younger or or maybe you don't do residential work, here's a little something that you can look at, a little takeaway for you that you can go and see how this has manifested itself in your community. So if you look at some of these large residential developments, right, they'll end up having a brick house. And remember I made that comment about how a lot of municipalities only consider the elevation to be from the ground plane up to the plate line? Mm -hmm. Take a look at the chimneys. How many brick houses do you see with cement fiber chimneys, firebox? Mm-hmm. So when the chimney comes up on the side of the house or out of the roof or whatever, it's not brick. It'll be cement board, mm-hmm. right? It's because they're like, well, I don't want to pay to cover it. And, and I don't have to. Like, I don't have to because it's above the plate line. Yeah. So scoreboard on that. Or they'll have that visibility requirement. And so the front of the house will be brick. And then it'll turn, turn the, the corner, corner for like a foot. <laughs> and then it turns into some sort of cladding. Yeah, yeah. And I always got a big kick out of that. And it used to bother me so much that a long time ago when I used to work for this, I did a little planning and zoning work myself. I worked for a company that specialized in helping you navigate the treacherous waters of city bureaucracy. If you need to get your piece of dirt replatted or rezoned or Mm -hmm. some type of waiver on what you want to do versus what's allowed, we helped you with those things. And I used my architectural background to create drawing exhibits and, and create architectural arguments as to why what we're asking for is not unreasonable and should be allowed. And one of the projects we got hired for was from a developer. And what he specialized in is he would go buy like three big houses and tear them down and then take those three big lots and then create a cul-de-sac and chop it into nine lots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everybody had like weird shaped lots now from these three like massive pieces of dirt before. Yeah. So we got hired to create basically the overlay district that was on top of the underlying residential zoning that said, okay, in order for us to do this, like everybody owns a piece in the road and we got to have private trash pickup because the city can't navigate this small street with their garbage trucks. We were basically writing all the rules that this developer would have to conform to in order for the planning and zoning department to recommend these changes to the city Mm -hmm. to let him do this, right, to make these changes. So I went in. I mean, I hope to God I don't get in trouble for acknowledging this. I wrote in and I was like, hey, you know what? No changing materials at the corner. You got to go back 10 feet. And I wrote it almost as if like, city's making us do it. Like, yeah. Uh-huh. And he's like, what? We, well, we turned it back a foot. And I go, no, no, no. Look, it says 10 feet. And he's like, God dang it. 10 feet's a lot. And I'm like, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. Or we had to, I put trees. Like I said, the front yard of all these will have two trees. And I specified like what kind of mm-hmm. trees they had to be. Like, so no Bradford pears, no crepe myrtles, none of these kind of ornamental trees. Like, these have to be like real. Real trees. Yeah. Like, you could put in oaks, right? Like, these are all the species of trees. And this guy's like, God dang, look at all the stuff they're hitting me with. And I was like, it's all me. (laughs) Yeah. And I will say that's one of those things, right? That I will admit to doing as much as I can, sneaking stuff like that in. Because to me, that is the design better part that you just kind of have to do sometimes. A lot of times for me, that was like energy efficiency and some sustainability things that I just stick it in there. Don't tell anybody, but that's because I think that's right. That's what should happen. Not big things, but. Yeah, it's because it's better. I was specifying no VOC paint before that was 
really a requirement. You shouldn't be doing that. And it doesn't cost that much more. So let's not kill all these people by making them breathe fumes forever. Well, you know, the kind of exclamation to all of this is, again, it's easy for us to be in our ivory towers and cast boulders down on the people that are just trying to make a living and keep water out of the building. I will never claim to be in an ivory tower because I understand the struggle. Doing public work is a struggle, a big struggle. You always talk about choosing your contractors and in the public sector, I didn't have any choice. I got stuck with whoever. Yeah. There was no, none of that. So I, yeah. I am nowhere near an ivory tower on any of this for sure. I am definitely somewhere in that tower for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe that's what makes it so much easier for me to say, that sucks <laughs> over there. <laughs> probably burn the building down probably and look this is a huge acknowledgement here i'm well aware of how fortunate i have been in my career it's not like these things just accidentally fell in my lap i mean i worked i positioned myself to be doing the type of work that i'm doing through effort and sweat and toiling and all that kind of stuff but i can't help but think that i still look at things and go you know what I don't think any of us would look at that and go, man, I'd be proud if that was mine. I think we all generally can go, and this is what I try to do. And writing the blog for as long as I've written has tempered my judgmental opinion towards a lot of things. So I go, all those things that we rattled off towards the beginning of this episode, things that were outside their control, like maybe they didn't get to choose their contractor. Maybe the municipality gave them some kind of garbage requirements that they had to conform to that didn't make any sense, which is why this looks weird. Maybe they didn't have the appropriate amount of money to do what the client was asking for. So this was, God help them the best they can do. I'm willing to concede that those things exist. But at the same time, I see amazing work from people that I go, like our buddy Michael Shue down in Austin. He's done projects that are really, really cheap. Mm -hmm. They're not big budget projects and they're amazingly done well. Yeah. And I look at architects, Julie Eisenberg and Hank Koenig, the work that they're doing. I, I have a couple of their books and I go, none of this was expensive. Mm-hmm. Like this is all really clever problem solving on like a shoestring budget. Yeah. So part of me goes, their projects aren't any simpler and they don't have like the world's greatest contractors and they don't have like, like, Hey, let's fly in Tibetan monks to stamp gold leaf on the yeah. powder bathroom ceiling. That's not the kind of projects that they're taking on, Yeah. but somehow they managed to do really exceptional work. And I go, it seems like we could all try a little bit harder and I don't want to be a downer and like be on my soapbox kicking people that are trying to climb up on the soapbox with me you know I, it's fine I'm like, come on let's do this I'm feeling a couple of kicks but I got you I know I don't think it's unreasonable <laughs> you know what you could be fantastic you could be one of those people that I just left it off as like hey let's hold these people out as emblems we could all aspire to do what they're doing I don't care who you are you can always aspire to do better mm-hmm. and I think that that's part of the motivation of when when I look at work I kind of go Uh, Could that be better? Of course it could be. So what was missing? What happened to make this not be all that it could be? There's got to be something. Yeah. It starts with me. It starts with me. I I can do better. I feel like sometimes as designers, we have a tendency to blame everybody else for all that stuff. Yeah. Well, it was the contractor. It was the municipalities things. Right. But I mean, I think it's a talent for sure to be able to work really well in all of those conditions and still get things done. But again, I think we could, we can all resign ourselves to try and do better. Yeah. I think that's a thing as opposed to just going, sitting on your hands because, well, that's what the municipality said. So here it is, my five foot setback every 20 feet. It's uninspired and that's just what I'm doing. Yeah. Again, I understand. I mean, I can definitely pull up works that I've done and go, yeah, that was not great. (laughs) That could have been better. Yeah. I think to me, it's a matter of being able to navigate all that stuff. And it takes skill. It takes effort. Yeah. So, look, this conversation, I don't want it to be a negative one because I don't believe it's a negative thing. I think it's, it's aspirational, right? Yeah, I agree. But I do think that we need to have a little bit of silliness at the end of that conversation to kind of bring everybody back from the brink a little bit. Self-reflection is over. It's time for this episode's Would You Rather. So this episode's Would You Rather question actually comes to us from Andrew today. Da-da-da. Right? Take a bow. Exactly. All right, so here we go. We'll just get into it. I think this one, to me, is definitely a right and wrong answer on this one, in my opinion. Yeah, I think so. Let's get ready to do it. Let's see if it's the same. Would you rather have super sensitive taste 
or super sensitive hearing? And since it's your question, I go first. Yeah. Because then you can tell me why I'm wrong, but I'm not going to be wrong. <laughs> it's got to be super sensitive hearing. It's the only answer. Are you sure? A hundred thousand percent. If that was a thing, if I could be a hundred percent correct a hundred thousand times, that's how correct I am on this answer. Interesting. Bring it on. Bring it on. Challenge me. I don't know that I would disagree with you, but as we were sitting here talking about it. Okay. So super sensitive hearing. Think about it at night. Right now, you're sort of insulated from things, but hearing all the crickets, hearing all the frogs, hearing all the birds, hearing dogs barking three miles away. <laughs> if there was a limitation to it, I guess it just depends on how sensitive that... How super sensitive are we talking about? I know. That's what I'm saying. That would be my question. But just even the tick of the clock in your living room, that's definitely going to be something you hear constantly, right? So this is like super... Superpower, super hearing is what, what you're saying. I think so. Yeah, I would assume. You know, I still choose it. Or even if it's just super sensitive, I think you would hear everything that happens in your house, like all the time. So, you know, whatever that is. Yeah, but I think if that's the case, I'm going to hear this person breathing, that person breathing, and that dog breathing, and that dog breathing, and this cat making noise, and this... It's all going to start to just be a bunch of white noise. You think? If it was 100% silent and I just had one clock going... Tick, tick, tick. tick yeah. Tick. Maybe so. Tick. Yeah, maybe that would drive me bonkers. There's a lot of sounds. It's all going to be like this one, this low rolling rumble of sound that's going to be taking place. Yeah, maybe maybe at some point, right, it becomes like the TV in the background or whatever. You're doing what you're doing. It's just there. You don't really care. But I wonder if I would be able to tone that out to do the others, to listen to what I was doing or having this podcast right now, but yet I can hear my cat scratching the room over there or whatever it is. While all this is going on, cars driving in the drive. Imagine that siren that came through earlier, how bad that would be. Because you would have heard it the moment it got even within earshot. Well, you think that your hearing would still be, regardless of how sensitive it is, it's all proportional. So obviously, I hear you loudest in my ears right now because I'm piping you into my head. Yeah. Right? Maybe. And yes, I heard the siren, but my super hearing is all going to be proportionally better. So you're going to be even louder in my ears. And at a certain point, we're going to say it's not a volume thing. So it's not like my eardrums are exploding constantly because the slightest noise is going to make my eardrums explode. Yeah. There's all this kind of relative sound yeah. to it. Yeah. Right. And some people will say, oh, you, you can eavesdrop more easily. Yes. And part of me goes, I mean, for my sanity, I don't know that I want to hear what other people are saying all the time. Well, that would be the thing sitting in your office. And could you imagine that if you just, you heard all, everything that all 80 people in their office are doing? All the keyboards clicking and the mouse is clicking and the click and the click and the click. Oh my gosh. That was. I think you'd probably get pretty good at being able to focus in on stuff because, like, let's say you're at a bar and it's loud. Oh, right? yeah. It's like a roaring, right? I mean, I'm saying right now with regular hearing, if I go in a bar yeah. and it's really loud and I'm trying to have a conversation with somebody, I'm focused in on what they're doing. I hear the yeah. other noise, but I'm focused in on what they're saying. I'm not hearing 15 conversations at once. That's true. And I can't understand the words coming out of his mouth because it's co-mingling with all the words coming out of everyone else's mouth. All the other words. So I go, I think I could manage that. Yeah. Right. What I don't think I could manage is the taste. Like, cause you know what? Oh, yeah, could you imagine? Oh, hold on. This is why I think the taste is bad. <laughs> okay. I think good stuff doesn't taste better. It makes everything taste worse. Worse. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. I think hearing is the right answer a hundred percent. But when I was thinking about the food thing, could you imagine if you had super sensitive taste that like, say, for example, the milk isn't going to expire for another two weeks, but you can already taste it mm -hmm. slowly getting bad. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You're like, oh, or whatever it is. Things now that you don't really pay attention to, like fruit going bad, or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It would be way worse. Oh. I, way worse. I sit there and I think this would be a positive thing even. I can taste the soap that the guy who made my pizza washed his hands with. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? right? You're like, and you're like, well, at least there's soap. <laughs> I know. As opposed to the hair gel that the guy used who made my pizza. I can taste that. I mean, there's nothing's better. The soap they washed the pan with. Yes. Any of that. The residue from... I don't think there's anything good about being able to taste more unless you were like a drink wine and be like, oh, here, I can taste the tannins and the blood, or for beer, it'd be cool. But like, otherwise, I don't think that 5% of good would outweigh the 95% of bad about having super taste. Nope. Yeah. 
Oh, I can taste the dust that was in this <laughs> bottle when they filled it. I know, right? It's like, right. nope. I don't think there's anything good about that. Everything's worse. The other thing about the hearing that I would be curious, if we're going to call it super sensitive, does then that make you be able to hear like a wider range of sounds, like dog whistle level and sort of sub sound level? I think that would be different. That might be harder to acclimate yourself to, to hearing things that other people couldn't ever hear. I feel like I might go crazy. Yeah. So when I think about super sensitive, what I don't think is, oh, I can hear the dog snuffling three miles away. That's not what we're talking about. I think it's like, <laughs> I'm sitting here and normally I can hear something 10 feet away. Now I can hear something 30 feet away. 30 feet away. Yeah. Right. Like it's, it's better, but it's not from, oh, my hearing range is 30 feet. And now it's 30 miles. Three miles. Yeah. Yeah. I go, it's not that. Because then if that same scale level of difference was for the taste, 100% you don't want to do it. Like, yeah, there's just no way. Everything would be agony. Can you imagine drinking water and all you're tasting is, oh, heavy metals. Oh. You know, oh, there's all kinds of pharmaceuticals in this water that I'm drinking. Yeah, I can taste the particulates. Pass. Even though it's a 0.01 microns? Yes. Yeah, one part per million. Yes. Uh, um, yeah. That's a hard pass. They're all showing up. That's a hard yeah, pass. Yeah, brutal. There. Okay, so we agree. Super sensitive hearing, 100% the way to go. Oh, what about, like, imagine kissing someone and you'd taste what they had for lunch and all. Gross. Even if it's just on the lips, you're like, blah. Or like, oh, you've got a cavity. Like, I can taste your cavity. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about this is terrible. Yeah, that's terrible. Okay, well, there yep. you go. Fun, <laughs> uplifting conversation <laughs> to end. This episode. So there you go. Another episode in the books. I hope you enjoyed actually all parts of today's episode. And thank you for being with us today for episode 77 Design Better. Shout out to our media partners, Design, Build, and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you like today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button so you can get warm and sunny new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks. And while you're there, please consider leaving us a comment. We would greatly appreciate it if you leave us a five-star, do-more-better rating. Be sure to visit the original lifeofanarchitect.com for show notes, links, info, and photos from this fabulous episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.